American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about the unsinkable Molly Brown, who frankly would have deserved her own episode of American Catholic History, even if she hadn't famously survived the sinking of the Titanic. You're not kidding. She helped fund the construction of the Cathedral Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Denver. She helped establish the juvenile criminal justice system in the U.S. She helped rebuild war-torn France after World War I. She was very active for women's suffrage, agitated for improved labor relations, worked hard for public services to aid the destitute, and she even ran for public office at a time when women just didn't do that sort of thing, among other things. And she had a successful acting career towards the end of her life. Because why not? What else is there to do? I know. So let's get into her story. But first, if you're familiar with the musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown, you'll find that a lot of it wasn't quite based in reality. Shocker. The story of the real-life person behind The Unsinkable Molly Brown begins in Hannibal, Missouri in 1867. That's when Margaret Tobin was born. Yes, her name was Margaret, and she was actually called Maggie, not Molly. And Hannibal was the hometown of Mark Twain, the author of the great American adventure stories. Maybe Margaret drank a double portion of the local waters. Seriously, hers was not a quiet and simple life. No. So Margaret Tobin was one of six children of Irish Catholic parents. Both of her parents had left Ireland during the potato famine and met and married when they both lived in West Virginia. They brought with them a strong sense of fighting against oppression and standing up for what's right, so here in the States, they were both active against slavery. It is believed that Margaret's father even manned a station on the Underground Railroad when he was living in West Virginia near Harper's Ferry. The Tobins believed that all of their children should receive an education and should be encouraged to achieve whatever they thought right, and Margaret imbibed that attitude. They were also raised proudly Irish and devoutly Catholic. Yes, very both. And they grew up with a romanticized view of the West and the opportunity for great fortune. Right. The gold rush had settled down, but there was still gold in them there, Hills. So when she was 18 in 1885, she, her brother Daniel, her sister Mary Ann, and Mary Ann's husband moved to Leadville, Colorado. Leadville was the fastest growing city in the U.S. in the 1880s due to the silver and gold mines nearby. It is west of Denver and nearly one mile higher in altitude. So Leadville naturally calls itself the two mile high city. Because of the silver and gold, Leadville was a multi-ethnic city with people from all over the place coming to seek their fortune, including freed slaves and Chinese. But it was heavily Irish and Catholic. The Irish Catholic culture centered on Annunciation. Parish. Margaret's brother started a blacksmith shop and Margaret got a job in a department store. It was there in Leadville that Margaret met James Joseph Brown and they fell in love. But Margaret wasn't sure that she could marry him. He was a mining engineer, so he had a steady job, but he was as poor as she was. And that was the problem. Margaret had always intended to marry a wealthy man. She was determined that her father 
who had worked so hard for so much of his life, would be able to spend his final years in comfort because she had married a wealthy man. But the hang-up was that she loved J.J. Ultimately, she decided that she would rather be with a man whom she loved, even if he was poor, than with a man she only went after for his money. So Margaret and J.J. were married at Annunciation Church in 1886, when Margaret was 19 and J.J. was 31. They had two children, Lawrence in 1887, and Catherine in 1889. And they were living comfortably enough since J.J. had risen to be manager of mines for his employer, Ibex Mining. It wasn't long after her children were born that Maggie's activism began when she founded the Colorado chapter of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. But everything changed for the Browns in 1893. Yes, in 1893, the price of silver crashed as part of an economic depression which hit the country. Leadville was hit very hard, and many, many miners lost their jobs. Unemployment in Leadville soared to nearly 90%. The boomtown was busting. But J.J. Brown saw an opportunity. He decided to try something he'd been considering for a while, but couldn't attempt so long as the silver mines were making a profit. Exactly. J.J. had become convinced that one of the company's silver mines, the Little Johnny, had very large deposits of gold down deeper than the silver. But the miners couldn't get to it due to the dolomite sands, so they kept focusing on the silver. J.J. devised a mechanism that he believed would hold back the dolomite sands and allow the miners to get to the gold. Again, so long as the silver was profitable, there was no reason to try it. Now that the silver was essentially worthless, there was nothing to lose. And it worked. With his innovation, the Little Johnny Mine became the most productive gold mine in the country. J.J. was given 12,500 shares of stock in Ibex, a seat on the board of directors, and control of the Little Johnny Mine. The Browns were millionaires overnight. They moved to Denver where they bought a fabulous mansion on Schwanky, Pennsylvania Avenue, and Margaret became the newest member of Denver High Society. I wonder if they call it Mile High Society there. Anyway, but she didn't quite fit into high society. She was still too hard scrabble. She would still say what she thought needed to be said and advocate for what she thought was right. She didn't forget where she'd come from and the plight of the hardworking miners she'd just recently lived among. Though living the mile-high life in Denver, she would still help at the soup kitchens and other services set up to help the poor. So while the upper crustiest of the upper crust would accept invitations to parties at the Browns' mansion, many of those same people would conveniently forget to invite the Browns to parties at their own homes. This bothered Margaret, but it didn't get her down. She made her own society. In Denver, she became a charter member of the Denver's Women's Club, which was dedicated to helping women improve themselves through education and philanthropy. To aid the destitute, she advocated for public baths at the courthouse, plus the construction of more public parks. And she continued to go personally to help at the soup kitchens. Wealth and her place in society did not change her. In fact, if her newfound wealth changed her, it emboldened her to do more good works and become more active for good changes to society. Another example which we teased at the outset, she worked with a forward-thinking municipal judge to establish a new way of handling juvenile offenders, seeking to aid them and recognize their youth rather than just lumping them in with the adult population of criminals. This collaborative work became the model for juvenile justice systems across the country. 
As the turn of the century neared, Margaret did even more to improve her abilities. She spent time attending the Carnegie Institute in New York, where she studied languages, including French and Russian, as well as drama. In 1902, Margaret and J.J. decided to take some time just for themselves and travel the world. Their marriage had suffered a bit, as J.J.'s travels for business were extensive and rumors swirled of infidelity. In addition, J.J. had very traditional ideas about the role of women in society and didn't appreciate how publicly Margaret lived her life. Their round-the-globe trip succeeded in bringing them closer together for a time, but they continued to drift apart. One thing that didn't help was when Margaret decided to run for public office. No, that definitely didn't fit in with J.J.'s ideas of the proper roles of women. No. During the first decade of the 1900s, they were both involved in the construction of the new cathedral for the Diocese of Denver. Since the beginning of the project, J.J. had been on the board that raised the initial funds to break ground and begin construction in 1902, but then the project had stagnated. Until Margaret stepped in, that is. Of course. Yeah. She couldn't handle such an important project just sitting unfinished. To her, it was a mark of pride for her Irish heritage, and it was important to her as a devout Catholic that the cathedral be completed and that it be glorious. So she got involved in 1906. That year, she organized a massive Carnival of Nations fundraising event. Members of all nationalities were invited to set up neighborhoods with booths that shared the best of their nation's traditions. Food, clothing, jewelry, dance, art, etc. She made a special point to invite those who had suffered some of the most harsh treatment, the Chinese and the Native Americans, so the people who generally looked down on these people could see some of the beauty of their cultures as they saw them. Naturally, she got very involved in the Ireland booth, demonstrating Irish step dancing, which she learned as a girl, and even helping to give lessons to those who were interested. The event was a success. Along with direct requests that Margaret made of her wealthy friends, the money was raised to recommence construction and the cathedral was completed in 1911. That cathedral is now the beautiful Cathedral Basilica of the Immaculate Conception and it is on the list of places to visit when we lead a pilgrimage to Denver at some point in the future. But there were other major events that happened while this effort was underway. First, in 1909, Margaret and JJ formally separated after 23 years of marriage. They never attempted divorce, and both said that they never stopped respecting and loving each other, but their life together had become unworkable. They signed a formal agreement of separation in which Margaret got control of the Denver mansion, plus a healthy allowance on which to live and travel and continue doing all of her charitable work. And she did lots more of that. She also traveled more. In early 1912, she traveled abroad with some friends, including the Astors of New York, spending time in Egypt and Paris. But this trip was cut short for her. While most of her party had planned to stay in Europe for a longer time, in April, Margaret got word that her young grandson was ill, so she booked an early trip back to the States on a super schwank luxury liner departing from England on its maiden voyage. Hmm, let's see. Super schwanky luxury liner leaving England in April of 1912. The Titanic. You got it. We got this far into an episode about unsinkable Molly Brown, and we're only now talking about the Titanic or why she's known as Molly, even though her name was Margaret. That's how incredible her life was apart from this notorious episode. Okay, well, let's end the suspense. She was on the Titanic on that ill-fated trip. She was in bed reading when an iceberg made its mark. Yes, she was thrown from her bed by the impact, and when confused voices and running could be heard in the corridor, she poked her head out to see what was the matter. The pale-faced man whom she encountered managed to splutter out that she would need her life preserver. She dressed and got out onto the deck where the reality of the situation was quickly clear. 
the unsinkable ship was sinking. Not one to be idle, she aided in organizing efforts to get people onto lifeboats, and would have kept on doing so until she was told directly, it's your turn to get on a lifeboat. She was shepherded onto lifeboat six, which was lowered to the water less than half full, primarily occupied by women with a few children and one officer assigned to that boat. As the Titanic was slipping beneath the waves, Molly was manning an oar, but she was exhorting her fellow lifeboat passengers to go back and look for survivors. She kept up the argument, but the officer on the boat steadfastly refused to allow it for fear that the lifeboat would either be pulled under by the suction from the great ship going under, or that so many survivors would come to the lifeboat and would swamp it, thus killing them all. Despite her efforts, the lifeboat did not go back. When the Carpathia picked up as many survivors as it could find, Margaret immediately recognized the dire situation facing so many of the survivors. So many of them were women who had just lost their husbands and maybe children, or they were children who had just lost their parents. She organized makeshift grief counseling as well as a survivors committee among the wealthier survivors. And before the Carpathia had even reached New York, she had raised $10,000 from her fellow first class passengers to support those who had lost all. She was the last Titanic survivor to disembark from the Carpathia. And from then on, she remained involved in relief efforts for Titanic survivors. The genesis of her moniker, the unsinkable Molly Brown, surfaced sometime after the Titanic disaster. Unsinkable was first used by a Denver columnist as a nod to her surviving the sinking, but also as a reference to her inability to lay low and stop being active. And it wasn't misplaced. In 1914, she became very politically active. She ran for the U.S. Senate, but dropped out before Election Day because her sister was married to a German baron, and given the political situation with Germany in 1914, that was a huge political liability. And the name Molly came much later still, well after her death. She was called Maggie in life, never Molly, but when it came time to write the musical about her, Molly flowed better and it was a nod to her Irish heritage. So the unsinkable Molly Brown rather than the unsinkable Margaret Brown or the unsinkable Maggie Brown. I mean, I guess it flows better. I guess, yeah. But back to the unsinkable reality, because Molly is a fiction. She became even more active in activism for women's suffrage, and she also played a role in mediating a major labor dispute. Right. Miners in Ludlow, Colorado, had been on a strike for months protesting harsh working conditions, extremely long hours, and terrible pay. The company, part of John D. Rockefeller's empire, wouldn't budge. On April 20th, the dispute turned bloody and 20 were killed. The violence brought the workers' grievances into the national spotlight and the workers sought Margaret's intervention. So she mediated... And the result was that ownership buckled enough under the bad PR that conditions improved for the workers. But wait, there's more. A world war had broken out. Do you really think Margaret Brown would let that go by without her being involved? Uh, no. <laughs> During World War I, she traveled to France for the American Committee for Devastated France, where she supported efforts to rebuild war-ravaged portions of that country. For her work, she was awarded the French Legion of Honor. During this time, a New York newspaperman wrote, If I were requested to personify perpetual activity, I believe I'd name Mrs. J.J. Brown, the Newport social figure, suffragist, and patriot. Wait, Newport socialite? Yes. She'd moved to a rented mansion in Newport, Rhode Island by this point. It was closer to where her activism was centered, and the community was mostly the wives of super wealthy men who spent most of their time in New York City. So since she and J.J. were separated, she fit right in. 
J.J. Brown died in 1922 and was buried in Westbury, New York. Upon his death, Margaret said, I've never met a finer, bigger, more worthwhile man than J.J. Brown. She'd never lost her affection for him. His death also triggered a five-year probate battle between Margaret and her two children because J.J. died without a will. The whole matter was wrapped up by 1927, and any animosity was smoothed over not too long after. In her final years, beginning in 1920, Margaret Brown tried her hand at one last new endeavor, acting. Right, because why not? She'd studied acting at the Carnegie Institute in the early 1900s and decided to give it a go. She performed in a production of the play L'Aiglon, which was about Napoleon II, as it ran in Paris and New York. She was living in the Barbizon Hotel in 1932 when she died peacefully in her sleep of a brain tumor. After a Catholic funeral, she was buried next to her husband, J.J., in Westbury. This end is fitting for Margaret Brown because the Barbizon was known as a place where up-and-coming actors and actresses stayed as they tried to make it in New York. So rather than staying in her lavish mansion in Denver or her opulent rented mansion in Newport, Margaret Brown was, once again, happy to be with those who were struggling to rise above the odds just as she had done so many times in her own unsinkable life. You've been listening to American Catholic History, produced by the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And we ask you to consider supporting the work of SQPN. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. To learn more about the unsinkable Margaret Brown, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to unforgettable American Catholic holy sites, please visit our American Catholic History website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heastercrow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.